This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 85, The Conquest of the Yucatan, Part 3. I finished the last episode by saying that today we would find out if Montejo would ever succeed in his long-running attempt to conquer the Yucatan. Well, the short answer to that is that technically he wouldn't. A turn of events will stop him. Attentive listeners might guess that this event had something to do with the illness he was suffering from. But no, that isn't it. In fact, it was good news, from his perspective, which drew him away from the Yucatan. I mentioned last episode, that a group of his men had been driven out of the southern peninsula, and that they had sought refuge in Honduras. The authorities there had looked after them, but they had sent them back to Campeche, because they didn't want them encroaching on land which they considered to be within their yet unsettled northern border. Well, Montejo must have been good at advocating for himself, because despite his lack of real progress, his reports back to the king seemed to have been impressive. The king decided that Montejo was clearly a capable and successful conquistador, and so he decided to extend the territory awarded to him all the way down to the Rio Alua. Today this river is just inside Honduras's border, so in today's terms, Montejo now had rights to the whole of Belize, parts of Guatemala, and a sliver of Honduras. This was happening just as his men were being sent back to Campeche. Two years later, around the time that his attempts to colonise the north of the peninsula had failed, something presumably not yet known in Spain, the king decided to combine the two governorships, Yucatan and Honduras, into one. A few years later, he would also be given Chiapas, Mexico's most southwestern state. I don't know how he managed to persuade the king to give him even more territory. The result of all this was that Montejo will now be distracted, and he will focus much of his attention on the already more established colony. First, however, he and his son returned to the northern Yucatan to reclaim the area from which the Spanish had so recently been removed. Compared to their previous campaigns, 
this time, things will go relatively smoothly. And they soon had it under some kind of control. Once again, however, the Yucatan and its people did what they had done over and over again. And soon, their progress was lost. This time, in the defence of their land, the Maya had some unlikely outside help. Pizarro was a good way into his conquest of Peru at this point, and news of the riches that had been found there, and the speed at which they had been won, was spreading throughout the empire. The colonists and soldiers in the Yucatan, on the other hand, had fought long and hard for unproductive land and no precious metals. They were fed up, and many decided to leave. De Alvarado was still in charge of neighbouring Guatemala at this point, and you might remember that he made a brief trip down to Peru himself. When the colonists in the Yucatan heard this, some left to help make up his army. Of course we know that this will turn out to be a waste of time. They will turn back soon after they landed in South America. They didn't know that, however. And for a Spanish colonist, whose primary reason for coming to the Americas was to gain land and riches, you can see why it was a tempting proposition. Noticing the exodus of Spaniards, the Maya started organising again, and Montejo the Younger realised that he had no choice but to withdraw to Campeche. His dad was too busy in Honduras to help. Honduras had been a part of De Alvarado's Guatemalan governorship, and knowing what we do about his character, it's probably quite easy to guess how he reacted to the news that this part of his territory was to be given to somebody else. What followed was five years of angry disputes between him and Montejo, punctuated by a fierce indigenous rebellion which took a year and a half to deal with. The king didn't really help matters, constantly switching sides between the two when it came to who he gave legal rights to the area. The dispute only really ended when De Alvarado died. From then on, Montejo was in control of Honduras. Having all that to deal with kept him busy for the next five or so years. For his son, things were no better in Campeche than they were in the territory he was leaving behind. The Spanish colonists had had enough, and they were leaving there as well. A public vote was held, and the colonists voted by a large majority to give up and leave. Campeche was abandoned, and Montejo the Younger, to whom the conquest now fell, was back to square one. There were now no Spaniards in the Yucatan, except perhaps Gonzalo Guerrero, living among the Maya. It's not known with absolute certainty, but there is a story that he died a few years later, taking part in an attack against the Spanish in Honduras. While his father might have been distracted, and be about to gain a nice comfortable province to rule, Montejo the Younger had none of these advantages. He still wanted to make a name for himself, and furthermore, the Yucatan was still under his dad's control, even if it actually wasn't, and so he wanted to see it conquered eventually. As he made his way back to Tabasco, Montejo the Younger never gave up on the idea of returning to the peninsula. Before he could do that, however, he needed to gather more men and supplies. So on top of this, he needed to solidify Tabasco itself. It was in a better position than the Yucatan, 
being further ahead in its integration into the Spanish Empire, thanks in part to its access to water and its seemingly less rebellious indigenous population. But it wasn't exactly a prosperous province. Some of its colonists were also fed up of scraping by, and they were tempted by the stories of riches in Peru. Consolidating Tabasco took some time, but once things had been steadied, he sent his cousin, Montejo the nephew, off again into the Yucatan to re-establish his base at Champoton. He decided that in order to avoid repeating the mistakes of their last attempts, he would move slowly, taking time to consolidate each step forward and ensuring that there was a secure line of connection with already established settlements. This way, they would avoid creating isolated distant towns as they had done last time. This appeared to be a sensible plan, albeit a time-consuming one. The idea was to keep Champoton resupplied from Tabasco, but as Tabasco itself wasn't exactly flourishing, the flow of men and supplies wasn't as strong as he might have hoped. In all, the nephew spent about a year there before the mire in the area once again became tired of their presence. Without their support, the Spanish slipped into the same cycle of taking food by force and inspiring more hostility. Just as an uprising was about to begin, the nephew managed to round up the local caciques and hold them hostage. This put an end to the imminent rebellion, but all it really meant was another two years of desperately holding their position. They tried everything they could think of to improve their situation, including, for some reason, changing the name of their town from San Pedro de Champoton to Salamanca, of course. Perhaps they thought that this might trick prospective settlers into thinking that it was an older and more established settlement. I'm not really sure. By this point, Montejo's dispute with de Alvarado had just come to an end, and although he will not return to take part in the conquest himself, he was able to give it a bit more attention by sending his son a detailed plan of what to do next. First he should abandon Champoton and move back up to Campeche. Then he should gather all the caciques around and explain that the Spanish meant them no harm. If possible, he should look to divide the different polities by exploiting existing disagreements. Again, movement should be taken slowly with each place becoming firmly established before another forward step was taken. Having found that the Maya were excellent at fighting, that they weren't scared of all the guns, horses and armour, and that they were good at building fortifications, new tactics were created to give the Spanish a better advantage when it came to blows. All of this seemed to work, and although it will still be a slow and tedious process, it is this campaign which will finally bring the Spanish some sort of success. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Montejo the Younger had identified a new site to found their capital, 
and he made the push into the interior to reach it. The nephew took another route, but with the intention of meeting him there. The place they had chosen was the Maya town of Tiho, which today is called Merida. It is the biggest and most important city in the Yucatan. Whilst they had had success in talking around the Maya groups they encountered on the way there, the people at their planned capital itself were resistant to them. It took a long, drawn-out campaign, but eventually they were able to take the city. Soon afterwards, the various Maya groups came together and secretly planned another attack. They besieged the Spanish in the city, but they were eventually beaten back. This proved to be a decisive victory, and although the surrounding settlements offered them hostility as they moved out to incorporate them, the Maya were not able to coalesce again into a unified force. This time Campeche and Merida, now established, would stay established. After years and years of trying, the Spanish finally had their foothold in the peninsula. It would take another few years for them to slowly move eastwards and take control of the eastern part of the Yucatan. Tejo the son stayed in Merida, and it was the nephew who took charge of this process. The Maya states there had no intention of accepting Spanish rule, so inch by inch the nephew gradually fought each one in turn. First he headed up to the northeast tip of the peninsula, and then he moved southwards towards the region where his uncle had made that first attempt all those years ago. In 1542 he founded Valladolid, and although it was moved a year later because of rebellions, it too would remain established, and it is still today one of the larger towns in the eastern Yucatan, with many old Spanish buildings which date from this time. When he reached Cozumel, the island where his uncle had been welcomed on that first campaign, he found that the cacique there was once again friendly, and allowed them to establish themselves without any resistance. With that done, they sailed to the mainland, but were caught up in a storm which their small canoes could not deal with. Some of the Spanish drowned, and when news of this spread, the Maya in Capul and Cochua decided to revolt. The uprising was defeated, but these two groups will be among the most rebellious in the Yucatan, and they will have another go a couple of years later. Finally, the nephew turned his attention down to Chetamal. Here he faced some of the strongest resistance the Spanish saw anywhere during the campaign. The Maya there built forts, they destroyed their own crops to deny them to the Spanish, and they launched ambushes from the jungle. Both sides suffered from hunger, and it turned into a contest of who could hold out the longest, rather than who could win a decisive victory. The Spanish grew increasingly brutal, and in the end they won out. This marks the end of the conquest. As I mentioned at the beginning of this mini-series, the Maya of the Yucatan will never happily accept Spanish control. The conquest might be over, but the simmering desire to rebel will always be there. Through Spanish eyes, the region will always be a poor one. While it was perfectly good for the Maya, according to the way which the Spanish organised their colonial economy, based on the idea that you would be given some land, some indigenous people to work it, and you would sit back and grow rich, 
This was a poor land. If you were to be given an encomienda in somewhere like Colombia or central Mexico, you would have much more opportunity to create a strong income from agriculture, or even precious metals if you are really lucky. Here, it would be difficult in the swampy jungle. When the lack of wealth and the prospect of rebellion are taken into account, I'm sure that many of the colonists and soldiers would have wondered if the Yucatan had been worth such great effort to win. Even centuries later, once the colonial era was over and Mexico was an independent country, the region will still be considered a distant backwater. Merida will experience a boom in the 1800s, when the landowners there started growing henequen, which was made into rope and exported. But in truth, it wasn't until the 1970s, when the Mexican government noticed that the beaches on the eastern coast fitted the western stereotype of the white sand paradise, that the Yucatan will become somewhere which outsiders really cared about. They started putting vast amounts of money into the area, to build places like Cancun from scratch, and to expand existing villages like Playa del Carmen and Tulum. That Maya culture, which the Spanish must have grown to hate as they struggled to conquer the peninsula, particularly their ruins, became an additional money-making draw. While the conquest may be over, control was shaky, and we will revisit the area in the future to look at the waves of rebellion which took place over the coming centuries. The first one happened on the East Coast just a few years after the end of the conquest. This was an extremely serious and well-planned revolt, during which many Spanish settlers were killed, and Valladolid was besieged. It was on the verge of being completely destroyed when reinforcements came from Campeche, and just about managed to beat the Maya back. Many of the Maya never accepted Spanish authority, and a portion of those in the rebellious East simply migrated out of their reach. At the beginning of this mini-series, I mentioned that geographically and environmentally, the Yucatan extends inland from the peninsula, out of today's Mexico and into Guatemala. Guatemala's northern Peten province has the same rugged jungle, a similar Maya pre-conquest history, complete with spectacular ruins, and it's also as remote from the country's centre of power as the Yucatan was to Mexico. The capital of Peten is Flores, a beautiful little city, whose historic core is on an island in a lake. The lake is named Peten Itza, because the Itza people, the one whose ancestors had built Chichen Itza, or Chichen Itza, as it's normally pronounced in the West, moved there and made it their new capital. Having had so much trouble in the Yucatan, neither the Montejos or any other Spaniard will bother to try and conquer Peten. It wasn't until 1697, a century and a half later, that the Itza people in Flores will finally be conquered. For their part, the Montejos won't do much more of note. The eldest one remained in Honduras for most of the rest of his life, before he was recalled to Spain after complaints about his conduct. His son will remain in the Yucatan for a time, before moving to richer and more established Guatemala to live out his days in comfort. The nephew decided that having spent so long trying to conquer it, 
he would make the Yucatan his home. He lived in Merida for the rest of his life. If you've enjoyed this episode and the podcast as a whole, one thing you could do which would really help is to leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps new people to discover the show. If you're feeling really, really generous, it's possible to leave a small donation. There's a link with information about how to do this in the show notes. A huge thank you to everyone who's done this already. And a special thank you to someone who recently made a very generous donation. It's much appreciated. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening hey drew scott here and i'm jonathan scott reminding you that life's better with a home policy from american family insurance they can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.